You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Ash Bennington, joined by Jack Farley. And today, a new day, a new era, the newest member of the Real Vision editorial team, Samuel Burke. Samuel, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. And I wouldn't want to start this without a hat tip to Ed Harrison, because I know he has such a big fan base here. And the fact that I'm here has nothing to do with the fact that he's uh, moved on to bigger and better things. But I know that he's beloved by the audience and beloved by people like me. So it's an honor to be here and certainly not fill his shoes, but try to stand next to his shoes. And welcome, Jack. Thanks so much, Ash. It's great to be here on Samuel's first day on The Daily Briefing. Indeed. So we've been talking a little bit offline about all the things that are happening in markets. The big show, the big story of the day, obviously, continues to be the hawkish Fed. What are your thoughts on this, guys? Samuel, let's start with you. Well, I think the Fed got it right. And it was interesting to see an FT headline saying that the Fed had nailed it. If you look at the reaction, I mean, yes, there was reaction in the markets, but it wasn't huge reaction. And I think what really fascinates me is the fact that what's shifting this, I really believe, is work from home and the fact that employees are suddenly in the power position. Maybe some offices are opening back up and people don't want to return to the office. So they're looking for a company where the offices have closed and they're looking for employees that are willing to work from home. And that puts all of the power in the employees' hands for the first time in a very long time. And I really believe that's fundamentally what's driving these shifts here. You know, a lot of people in the U.S. talk about the fact that the extended unemployment benefits are driving this. Well, I think that must be true. That must be a factor. But I'm here in the UK and we don't have those extended benefits. Ironically, a more socialist country here, you would think they might be even deeper, but they're not. And we're still seeing inflation here. So I think at the end of the day, I don't believe that this is transitory. And I think the Fed is catching up to that idea. And that's why we saw the dot plot move the way it moved. Jack, thoughts on that, on the Fed and inflation? I think, Ash, that today was a big, big stumbling block in the inflation trade. Now, the inflation trade is the opposite of worries about inflation, but you saw gold sell off. You saw oil, copper, uh, lumber, soybeans, pretty much everything that um, has been at the vanguard of the move up in, in prices. You saw a huge um, speculative plummet in, in those assets. Meanwhile, Ash, you saw the NASDAQ hold firm and stocks like Peloton, stocks like Tesla, DocuSign, uh, NVIDIA, those tech giants which people think of being most vulnerable to rising rates, they actually surged to some as much as 6% today. And I think that really has to do with the flattening that's happening on uh, both ends of the yield curve. And of course, all this action breathes new life into the dollar. Yeah. It, just a little bit of context for people who haven't been following the story as closely uh, as both of you have. Uh, so yesterday, the Fed was unexpectedly hawkish, meaning they signals that rates would be rising faster and sooner uh, than market participants had believed. Treasury prices declined. 
yields rose, particularly at the five to seven year maturity range. Uh, the 10 year rose, I think about 10 basis points yesterday uh, and break evens uh, on inflation declined. So now we look at this, Jack, and exactly to your point, it's an incredibly interesting one. As we look at what's happened in U.S. equity markets today, the first full session since the Fed statement and, uh, and uh, comments, we now actually see what, we, what seems counterintuitive uh, to see that growth stocks have rallied on this while rates are rising. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And I think we can actually put a few charts up. If you look at today, which is June 17th, the Nasdaq staged a epic recovery after it, it faltered yesterday alongside with the under, uh, other indices. Um, so that is what you see in the index level. And then if you look within the uh, select sectors, you see that at, uh, sectors that are very exposed to duration, like energy, like financials, so XLE, E standing for energy, F standing for financials, those really faltered today, whereas the XLK, the tech sector that you can see in the green on this chart, um, was 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 rising again. Um, so yeah, it, it is uh, very surprising. Yeah, and a very good overview on that, Jack, for what's happening in terms of sector rotation. Um, you know, the next thing that we have uh, to talk about here was jobless claims. Uh, obviously, there was an unexpected uh, change in this, an increase of thirty-seven thousand uh, from the previous week's highs. Uh, tell us what you guys think about that. Well, it was really driven by two states, Pennsylvania and California. It, when you look long-term, though, does anybody really not think that there's going to be a shift toward more employment, that people will not be moving away from these benefits? I mean, these benefits are going to be cut off, and it just brings me right back to the fact that, you know, you see here in places like the UK where we don't have these extended benefits and we still have some of these similar issues, I really don't see how this is going to be a long-term issue. And we've seen in previous months that people's expectations haven't been correct. And this was just another one of those months. But yeah. the big picture is vaccination is going very well, particularly in places like California. It's going to trend one way. And at the end of the day, the employee is going to have the power. And so maybe for a month like this, they have this option, but it's not going to be here in the medium to long term. Yeah, I'll take uh, that. I agree. And I'll take that cynicism one step further. Look, let's look at the big picture. Zoom the camera out on the employment data. So came in at 412,000, up 37,000. That's 14% higher. This is a weekly number. Obviously, we know there is noise in the weekly number. But take a look at that chart uh, and the overall shape of that chart. This is the initial claims chart, ICSA, uh, at the St. Louis Fed Fred database. And what you see is this. It wiggles around, and then it shoots up. Uh, to 6 million at peak, and then it plummets down uh, to approximately where we are now. It seems to me like this is something that is very much a part of the secular trend and then the noise, right? So you have this dramatic spike, obviously related to COVID. You have this incredible crash in the number of people who are seeking uh, to file these claims as the pandemic begins to subside in the wake of vaccination and the reopening. So pretty much very predictable. I don't think this is a story uh, that really moves the needle unless we see this on a sustained basis. But weekly data, they're volatile. You know, California, Pennsylvania, as you point out, Samuel, uh, can account for those changes. Jack, what are your thoughts? I think you're exactly right. I think it speaks to the magnitude of the chaos pandemonium in the labor market in March and April that these discrepancies we're seeing today to the tunes of tens of thousands of jobs for real people amount to nothing more than, than a few pixels. If you look at that one year chart, you can you can barely see it. Uh, but but Samuel, I think you are exactly right that 
the, the power really is in the hands of the worker. And the old saying is, um, or the, the old thinking was was uh, the Phillips curve, which is that if unemployment is uh, you know too high, it's very high, hard to have inflation. And if unemployment gets too low, and some people say there's no such thing as too low unemployment, um, then your inflation will run amok. But uh, you really, uh, you know, something gets thrown in the gears if there are workers who are making more money being on unemployment benefits than they are, um, um, you know, if they were go to back to work. So you actually can have inflation with the unemployment levels that we have today. There's, there's one thing that I think has been missing in a lot of this conversation, even though I acknowledge vaccinations are going in the right direction. The United States is going to have a plateau, possibly unlike any other developed country with vaccines. There is resistance to the vaccine. And I think what a lot of people haven't factored into, whether it's job numbers or the knock-on effect that it has throughout the economy, you have epidemiologists across the spectrum saying that this is going to be problematic whether it's liberals in California who don't want to get vaccinated or certain religious communities in New York, that these are the types of people who are going to suffer when these breakouts inevitably happen. And the U.S. might be the country with the most vaccine resistance and the most amount of vaccine. Rather ironic, as you have countries that say they're really not going to get much vaccine until 2022. This is one part of the puzzle that we haven't factored in. We don't see that vaccine resistance here in the United States. What effect will that have on the job market? What effect will that have on people claiming jobless benefits? And I really think that everybody's glazed over and just said vaccines, one direction, which overall is right. But this is going to have some type of effect on the economy. And I don't hear a lot of people except epidemiologists really talking about the medium to, to long term where we could see continued flare ups for a generation, according to epidemiologists. Yeah, it's a frightening prospect. Yeah. Look well, so sorry, Ash, I just got something which is, um, um, Samuel, I think that's a really good point. And if you think about how that impacts asset prices with 60% um, herd immunity, you know, people are going to be flying and I'm sure Delta and American Airlines, they're, they're going to have, the problem is they're going to have too much business, not enough. But what about those industries that really rely on true herd immunity, whether it's concerts where you're, you know, constantly just running into people and it's a mosh pit, or maybe uh, cruise liners where you know, if one person gets sick, that ship that is halfway, you know, to the UK is going to have to turn back. So it's, it's a really important question. And, and most epidemiologists in the United States don't think there will be herd immunity in the U.S. where places like Malta, where they've already hit the 80 percent, which is the, the standard mark for herd immunity for most epidemiologists. Exactly. What effect will that have on concerts? And the people who say, well, I can't go to work. Let's bring this full circle. Somebody who's caring for somebody who doesn't, uh, who can't shield, who can't get the vaccine for whatever reason. Those types of effects on the economy, I don't think that we've talked enough about. And it's really something that I think we'll keep a close eye here on the daily briefing and across Real Vision, because right now we're in a state of euphoria and Europe's starting to go through it. You're seeing stocks surge in Europe as we catch up, even though we're more vaccinated here in the UK than the US. But as you see Europe as a whole start to catch up, there's really this euphoria and I don't think people in the U.S. have stopped to think about the glitches that we're going to see with a society that is somewhat vaccine resistant. Yeah, Samuel makes some great points there. Uh, Jack, over to you. I'm curious. I know you've been following uh, the global stock and bond markets. What are you seeing abroad? Ooh, well, let's see. I think I'm going to have to steer out of the stock world and into the bigger but a little more esoteric world of uh, interest rate derivatives. Um, let's actually just 
put up a chart, which I found from a Morgan Stanley research report. Um, it is the timing of the first rate hike. In other words, when do you think the Federal Reserve will uh, first hike rates? Now, in uh, late March, early April, people were saying they wouldn't do it until December, as late as December 2022, whereas now that has increased to uh, May of, of 2023. Um, so then you look at um, a chart that actually Samuel flagged in the, the uh, Bank of America Global Fund Manager Survey, which came out recently, which is that inflation expectations have actually rolled over. Um, and I was curious, I said, Samuel, that's a great chart, but this is only the, the fund managers. I wonder what the broader, broader market says. So we looked at inflation expectations um, based on uh, TIPS or Treasury Inflation Protective Securities. We saw that that too um, was rolled over to just over 2.5 to down to 2.26. And if you look at the, uh, the five-year five years, um, that also is going down. So the market is believing the Fed. I think that, uh, Samuel, the, the FT opinion piece that you alluded to earlier, um, I think you know uh, that, that represents a majoritarian opinion. And the uh, bond vigilantes or the, the people who are calling BS on the Fed, so to speak, they, are, they remain in the mi minority. Yeah, I'm just curious to know, though, those people who just yesterday were talking about it not being transitory, inflation, the, the inflation, in general, I'd be curious to know what their view is today in the wake of the Fed decision, as it's all sat, uh, sunk in over the past 24 hours. Uh, there's Nobody's denying that there are inflation issues, but the degree and how long-lasting and the factors underpinning right. it are really what's changing the conversation. Yeah, that's exactly right. By the way, let me just say, um, I know this can get a little esoteric a little fast when we show these charts. Uh, the TIPS chart, the Te Treasury Inflation Protected Securities chart, is a measure of break-even rates, meaning calculating uh, what the expected rate of inflation is going to be as we look forward. You know, and exactly to Samuel's point, this really is the key question. It's been the key question. Uh, we know that there's inflation. Uh, the thing that we are debating, uh, not just on this show, but more broadly uh, in the investing community, is this nature of transitoriness. Uh, and the idea here is that when you have, uh, obviously, a catastrophic event like the COVID crisis, and then you're following it up with a reopening, uh, you can have these frictional issues, mismatches in supply and demand uh, that cause imbalances in the market, that cause uh, inflation to spike temporarily. And it is very much uh, something that uh, Jay Powell uh, is playing kind of close to the vest about understanding the balance of continuing to stimulate the economy. Obviously, uh, monetary policy remains accommodative. Uh, this is, as we talk about hawkishness, it's also important to remark uh, that this is about the relative levels of which accommodation are being withdrawn from the economy. We are not running uh, a tight money policy by a, a wide spread. Uh, and so we're just becoming slightly less accommodative at the margin. And it's the rate at which we're withdrawing that accommodation that is what we're debating here today. And it's the talking about the talking about talking about <laughs> increasing the interest rate. But I'm curious, I'm, I would like to know your take, Ash. What are the factors that stand out to you in terms of this being transitory or not? What are the arguments that really take shape uh, in your mind? Well, it's exactly you know the points that I just mentioned, whether or not we see uh, these sustained rises in prices, uh, whether or not uh, it begins to translate through the system, or whether it's just about these short-term uh, supply and demand imbalances. Uh, for example, it's very difficult. Uh, here in New York City, where I live, I'll give you an example. Uh, I went to a restaurant the other night, and they were closing at like 9 o'clock. And I said, guys, you were open till like midnight. What's going on? And they said, we can't find the people uh, to staff the restaurant. People who are in the food services industry left New York City uh, because the rents here are disgusting. 
uh, and the jobs were disappearing, so they left. So now you've got this challenge of trying to find people. Now, how do you lure workers back? You pay them a higher wage. Now, the question about whether this is transitory, meaning when the frictions are removed from the market, when people come back into that industry, when people come back into the city uh, and industries all across the country in similar fashion, uh, will, those, will those increases subside? That's very much an open question. Uh, and the reality is, as we, as we explore it, you know, the Fed, which hires, uh, you know, rows and rows of, uh, of economists are not able to answer that question. It's challenging for us to do so. But it's important to understand the argument, to understand the conversation that's being had. And this is very much a part of the conversation and one of the things that we're fortunate enough to get to discuss here. But, but come on with the lack of immigration that we saw to the United States in the Trump years, which is going to continue into the Biden years in all likelihood, and the plummeting population that, that we're going to have, the plummeting birth rates, I should say, rather. Yeah. You really you don't think that people are going to go and get those increase in wages, draw them back into New York City, and that they won't stay, Ash? Well, no, I mean, I do actually suspect that we may have uh, some degree of inflation. I, I actually am more on the inflationista side, I think, if I had to choose. Um, but yeah, I mean, look, obviously birth rates, uh, demography is something that's relatively stable. Uh, it doesn't change in a six or 12 month period dramatically. Uh, the policies around immigration are obviously important in understanding uh, the ability of new workers to come into the labor market. Uh, but it is a very complex issue and the Fed is still struggling with this. And I think markets are struggling to figure this out and to price it as well. Yeah, I mean, I don't disagree with you, but I think that the that gap between the six to and 12 months, I think a lot of these issues have already caught up to us in a lot of ways, whether it's in the United States, whether it's immigrants coming, or I should say migrants who can no longer come to the UK because of Brexit. A lot of those issues are, are catching up to the, the, the not so macro situation of the pandemic and being able to find labor. I think they're gonna hit heads much sooner than we think. Yeah, Jack, any thoughts? It's so hard to say, Ash, if, is something transitory or not? You know, it, when we had that, when Texas was in sub-zero frost uh, in early February and oil spiked, was that inflationary? I mean, sure, the right. price of oil spiked and we did see commodity inflation, but that is something that is clearly um, transitory. And on the other side of the shop, you've got right. a wage price spiral, which is your textbook definition of chronic inflation, where workers need more money because the uh, uh, you know they need they need more money so they demand higher wages and to pay for that companies raise prices so therefore workers need more money and it you things spiral out of control rather quickly like we're seeing in the 1970s um, I, I I honestly I don't know uh, what I think to be honest Ash you're a podcast listener and this is a podcast ad reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Yeah, this is the classic example of wage push inflation, the cyclicality of wage push inflation uh, and the risks that are uh, inherent there. You know, I guess it, it really comes down to the definition of inflation itself, which is that it's a it's a durable, broad based uh, increase in prices. And when you have a situation as uh, Jack was just describing, for example, in Texas, uh, when you have a natural disaster uh, or a power outage caused by a natural disaster that's changing the nature of the labor markets, uh, that doesn't generally Fit the definition of widespread inflation. Uh, so it's something that we're going to keep an eye on and look at further. 
I'm curious to switch gears here uh, a little bit to talk about um, what's been happening uh, with the some of the things in the uh, in the crypto space, in the DeFi space, particularly the Titan token. Any thoughts on this, guys? Oh, me? Um, Ash, I feel like you are the crypto journalist. How about you summarize it uh, for us, and then, and then Samuel and I can sort of give our take. Well, so the short uh, version of the story is that we had a, a DeFi token uh, that went from approximately two billion dollars in market cap uh, down to effectively zero in a hurry. Um, you know, the interesting thing about this is this this phrase that gets thrown around uh, quite a bit, uh, stable coins. I've often called them so-called stable coins. There really are three major categories of stable coin. Uh, the first is fully collateralized stable coin, where there's a one-to-one -one relationship between the assets that are held as collateral uh, and, the, and the value of the coin. You can think about things like Paxos, uh, USDT, which is Circle, uh, and then, of course, the one that everyone uh, questions is Tether. But that's the basic model. Then there are partially collateralized stable coins where have, there's some degree of backing in collateral that doesn't fully hit the face value of the coin. And then finally, you have these programmatic stable coins. Programmatic stable coins are unquestionably the most esoteric of the three. Uh, they use computer code to uh, basically do things like buy and sell uh, in liquidity pools in a DeFi sense to try and balance out uh, the supply and demand. It's a very esoteric product. It's important for people to understand. It is extremely, extremely early in this space. Uh, and these kinds of challenges have developed, <coughs> excuse me, in the past uh, and certainly may continue to develop in the future. Samuel, I know you've been following this story. Any thoughts there? Well, I mean, I think when you see a name like Mark Cuban saying that he's gone, you know, from something like 60 plus dollars down to zero for a coin, it's certainly not a good day for cryptocurrencies. Anybody looking at that in a big name like that is going to have a, is going to have real questions about it. I think it's interesting because these stable coins, uh, you know, it's it's an avenue for people to get in to cryptocurrency. And unfortunately, that's going to immediately make somebody question that. Um, right. I, I, overall, I think you've had two big hits for, for crypto. We'll get into the other one a little later, El Salvador and what's going on with them adopting crypto, adopting Bitcoin as an official currency. But I think right. between these two stories, it's, it's an overall negative day for crypto. Yeah, price action uh, relatively uh, relatively stable. Uh, Bitcoin and Ethereum both off uh, roughly two and a half percent, which within the volatility range that these coins trade is relatively muted and modest. I would say that people who are advocates of Bitcoin uh, will say, you know, this isn't something that has anything to do with our core thesis. These are products that are very abstract and very much uh, outside uh, of the mainstream crypto space and things that are, of course, highly volatile. And what about the people who are using the term rugged? You know, a lot of people wondering, although it's an allegation that the, the founders deny that, you know, this is the people who helped create it and just leave you high and dry the way Mark Cuban's been left. You follow it closely. Ash, what do you make of, of that? Yeah, so first, this, this idea of rugged, the idea is that it's a rug pull. The rug gets pulled out from under you. Uh, these questions are still open. It's incredibly early. This just happened uh, a number of hours ago. I think we're going to find out more uh, as we move on about this. And uh, whether or not, and I think it's important to note, uh, and not in the context of any one specific case, uh, but it's important to note that people say that securities laws don't apply to the crypto space. That, of course, is true. Uh, however, if there uh, are allegations of fraud, of 
course, civil and criminal fraud statutes certainly apply in the crypto space, but it's something that remains to be seen. It's open. Uh, we don't yet know what happened in this particular case. Uh, it could have been a flaw in the code. Uh, it's There are a lot of things that can go wrong. We've seen this happen numerous times uh, around the DeFi space. So it's really too early, I think, to even speculate uh, about whether there was, uh, whether there was, uh, you know, this was an event where someone had pulled liquidity out of the system uh, to uh, to rug pull someone else. I think it's very early, and we probably shouldn't speculate about that just yet. Yeah, the question, Ash, is which is more scary? If if you have dishonest people who are doing this, who are pulling out the rug, that's scary. But then if you have honest ethical people who are just trying to supply people with decentralized financial liquidity, and then the, their code blows up on them, and you have a coin go from $60 trading one day to next day trading to literally zero, I think something like, what, 35 millionths of a dollar or something like that, like yeah. very close to zero. Um, you know, I don't think people, when they hear uh, oh, uh, crypto is volatile, I think they hear, oh, it's going to go up 10%, maybe it's going to go down 10%. I don't think they think 60 to zero in, in a matter of, of a few hours. But Ash, one thing I read in that story was about how these stable coins, they say that they are over collateralized, which is that right. there is more of an asset that is backing the currency than the currency itself. And of course, that sounds extremely um, like uh, secure. Right. But the, the only other time that I, I've, I've heard that word is in the world of securitized credit and securitized lending and CDOs, CLOs, CMOs, collateralized debt obligations. And if you've seen the big short, you know, I mean, that, that world really blew up in 2007, 2008. And it used to be a huge center of profits for the financial center. And for the past decade, it's really been the, the hinterlands of finance just because of how much it was an epic disaster. Um, so, yeah. yeah. So well, typically the over collateralization uh, is in reference to the liquidity pools. So what a liquidity pool is, is you have people deposit, uh, an individual a liquidity provider will deposit uh, two different types uh, of coins. And the over collateralization uh, is the rate uh, at which they are going to be, uh, which they are going to be earning interest against or drawing against it. So it doesn't actually refer uh, to the underlying asset itself. In the case of in the case of uh, Circle, in the case of Paxos, those are fully collateralized stable coins. There's a one-to-one -one peg. Uh, they are held uh, in the case uh, of those companies, I think, in trust structures. I know Paxos is uh, devised as a trust. So they're basically segregated assets uh, that, in theory, are safer than a bank. And you're really just trading a claim uh, in the digital space on a single dollar of collateralized assets. So I, this gets really complicated really yeah. fast. And one of the reasons why it gets so complicated is that it's still so early in the space that the terminology hasn't even been standardized yet. So when you say over collateralized, uh, I think it's perfectly natural for people to think, oh, that means that there's more than a dollar of assets backing the coins uh, at initiation and will hold on to that uh, going forward. Not necessarily the case. It could be referring to, for example, a liquidity pool scenario. Great point. And Ash, I think in this case, I think that Titan itself was actually collateral for sort of its brother or sister coin, yeah. which was iron. And it was a 25% was for iron. So it really, you had this uh, network effects where iron was backed by Titan and Titan was backed by iron. So when one went down in value, right. the other went down. And that's where you had a, a little bit of a doom loop. But this is a yeah. sort of a- no, that's, that's exactly right. Yeah, that's as much exactly as it fascinates right. our interest. I know there's something, a, a much bigger story in the world of crypto, um, which I know Samuel has his eye on, and this is an international story. And uh, Samuel, tell us a little bit about Bitcoin and El Salvador. Well, it's a story that's close to my heart. I spent a long time in Mexico growing up. I did my university studies in Mexico. And I've seen firsthand the importance of remittances 
going to places like Mexico, like Central America, El Salvador, having a $6 billion uh, market for remittances. And when you see a country like this going for Bitcoin, a lot of people get caught up in the headline and don't realize that this is really key to them. Sending money back home from the United States usually to El Salvador is very complicated. And that's really why El Salvador adopted Bitcoin as an official currency alongside the dollar, the, the U.S. dollar that's used in El Salvador. And today the headline is that the World Bank has told them, no, we're not going to help you do this. I think it's a, a sad day for Bitcoin, a sad day for El Salvador, because I think there are a lot of people who are already sending Bitcoin, but they don't know exactly what they can do with it. So I think this sets El Salvador back. And I'm somebody who likes to look at really the fundamental uses of Bitcoin, of blockchain. I've seen in places like Dubai, people getting their report cards, getting their transcripts put onto blockchain. So when I can see one of those everyday uses come to life or come close to life and then take a step back, I think it's a negative overall. And I think it's disappointing because this has the potential to help El Salvador. Now, their finance minister is saying the IMF is still on board, but we did hear from the IMF saying, well, we still have major concerns about environmental impact, how it would actually be implemented. So El Salvador still has a good yeah. game face on, but I don't see where, where they'll go next from this. And they have said, I was watching a press conference with El Salvador's uh, finance minister saying they need the help, quite frankly, of the World Bank to understand this. They're not pretending that they get exactly how this would be implemented. There's no clear path for this. So it's hard to see where it goes next without the help of the World Bank or an organization like the IMF. Yeah, you know, to precisely that point, the quote from the World Bank, this is via Coindesk, who reached out to them was, quote, while the government did approach us for assistance on Bitcoin, this is not something the World Bank can support, given the environmental and transparency shortcomings that from an email uh, to Coindesk from the spokesperson for the World Bank. Samuel, I'm curious, you mentioned uh, at the beginning uh, of that conversation the uh, remittances use case. Tell us a little bit about what remittances are for people who are not familiar with the term and why it's so important uh, to some economies, particularly in Latin America. In a place like El Salvador, that money that, let's say, uh, a father of a family or a mother often goes to the United States, they're sending back a major portion of their paycheck yeah. to El Salvador to help the family they've left behind, maybe the parents they've left behind. And without those remittances, uh, an economy like El Salvador is relatively small, would fall. This is important. But getting money from the United States to El Salvador is much more complicated than you think. And that's why a significant percent, not a huge percent, but enough to take note of, are already using Bitcoin to send money from the U.S. back to El Salvador. Then what somebody does with it is a big question mark. And that's what El Salvador is trying to fill, that gap of, okay, somebody sent you Bitcoin how can you use it? I was listening to one of the executives from uh, Nexco talking about, well, this is a perfect time to use a service like ours where you can take out a loan for the future appreciation of your Bitcoin. So I thought that's an interesting opportunity there. But I think at the end of the day, this is really a strong case for Bitcoin. So if they can't make this happen, I think for me, there are these fundamental questions that you get back into in these big debates about where Bitcoin is, I would love to see these world, uh, real world examples come to life because it would give more credence to Bitcoin and to the people who can't understand Bitcoin. If you could see a situation like this where you could actually take that money that's being sent back, and it's not just El Salvador, we've seen uh, a spike in, in currents in Bitcoin being used across Central America. 
especially since the news came out that El Salvador was moving toward making this an official currency. And if you ask Siri or ALEXA right now, what is the official currency of El Salvador? She'll tell you that it is the dollar and it is Bitcoin. It is there. Yeah, I should add that Zach Mallers, uh, who is the uh, founder of, of, uh, of Zap, uh, was on Real Vision talking about the remittance use case issue. Uh, the product being used uh, in El Salvador is Strike, which is by Zap, uh, and it is a product that uses the Lightning Network, which is a payment rail, uh, an L2 solution on top of Bitcoin. Jack, anything to add on that point? Uh, yes, I think that it makes perfect sense for someone, a mother, a father, who's working very hard in the United States and they want to send, let's say, $100 per week um, back to El Salvador and they see Western Union. I, I don't know what the exact fee is, but you know, they, they're taking 8%, they're taking 10%. I think that, um, that that is definitely a market that is ripe for disruption. Um, but but uh, maybe what, what happens if they send over Bitcoin and Bitcoin declines 12% um, over the, by the time that their family can take out the money? You know, I, it's, maybe it's better to go with... Uh, Western Union. Well, I think the way that the payment rails are set up, that they are, uh, they're basically, they're arbitraging out the Bitcoin risk. I think Bitcoin is just being used as a, basically as a transmittal currency uh, on under the strike slash zap model over the lightning network. So there shouldn't be FX risk uh, that's being hedged uh, relative to Bitcoin. The risk uh, in theory is from the dollar uh, from the time you earn the dollar uh, into the currency that it's being remitted into, uh, in this case, in, in El Salvador. But I believe El Salvador uses dollars uh, as their yeah. primary currency. So in this case, there's actually no FX risk in theory uh, if it's being hedged out through uh, the Strike Zap product. Yeah, that's correct. It is the U.S. dollar. But it just gets back to what Jack was was saying there, uh, you would think that sending money, especially with the huge amount of Central American workers that you see in places like New York, the East Coast, much more than you see in places like the Southwest in the United States, you would think that there would be uh, inexpensive ways that were popularized. Right. And really, a lot, of, a lot of immigrants still suffer from those high rates uh, that Jack was referencing there. It's not such an easy process, yeah. especially on the other end in El Salvador. A lot of immigrants will have a bank account. They will have a social security number. They can send it through the popular banks that we know. But on the other side, picking it up in Mexico, in El Salvador, in other Central American countries can be rather complicated. Even me, you know, I wasn't working as, a, as an immigrant in that sense. I wasn't a, a laborer, migrant looking for work. Living in Mexico, between the U.S. and Mexico, and sending money was often complicated. Yeah, sending money domestically in the United States uh, via Western Union is also complicated and expensive. And an additional challenge is, uh, as Jack pointed out, the percentage basis, but also that there are fixed costs so that if you're transferring very small uh, value transactions, the fixed costs eat into them very quickly. Uh, and it really is very much a challenge. I'm looking here at our questions, and it's not surprising that they're beginning to light up the screen. Uh, here's an interesting one that comes to us uh, from Cabiel Alvarez. Uh, and the, it's actually a very high-level question about what we were talking about earlier, uh, touching on points that you made, Samuel, and also you, Jack. Uh, so Gabriel says, I don't understand markets. How can the Fed be hawkish when they're talking about rates, about raising interest rates 12 to interest 18 months from now? What? Why is that hawkish? Would it be hawkish if they said they were raising rates within the next three months or something like that? I just don't get it. This is a great question. <laughs> they're never going to do that. It gets back to the whole, I mean, they are there, as uh, one economist put it, 
just not to make fools of themselves. They've gotten into this cycle of talking about talking about talking. Literally, that's what the Fed chair was saying. I just don't think that we live in an environment anymore where something like that can happen. People want these signals coming far as far as possible. So the fact that we're even saying hawkish when it's about 2023, yeah, okay, the, our friend is right. But this is the nature of the Fed now and the market, the deep market reaction. And you go back to Bernanke, you know, just a few words that can really uh, change years uh, of thinking. This is the environment that we're in now talking about talking about talking. Shaq. Yeah, I, I think Gabriel is exactly right. The Federal Reserve, they have not given exact dates on when they are going to start tapering. And by the way, when they start tapering, they're going to taper from $120 billion per month of asset, $80 billion of treasuries, $40 billion of mortgage-backed securities, or MBS. They're going to go from 120 to 110, and then from 110 to 100, then from 100 to 90. There is no cold turkey here. It is they're just very, very gradually going to be tapering your assets. And then, Ash, after that, only after three quarters, and this is what they've said, of tapering, are they going to raise rates. So Gabriel is exactly right that this is, uh, uh, you know, on a classical basis, this is not a super hawkish stance. I think that this right. is a, when journalists describe this or market participants describe this as hawkish, it's relative. You know, in the same way that right. 40 yeah. degrees, it feels warm in the winter and 60 degrees feels cold in the summer. I think we've been in a very dovish time. And now this is a slightly hawkish move relative to that, you know, the double time we're in. But it wasn't what was expected at the end of the day. And that's why it gets back to what we were talking about at the beginning of the daily briefing is that it, obviously the situation isn't as transitory as some people had had signaled. You know, I'm not saying there's a huge difference because as, as the viewer points out, we're still talking ages away. But clearly the Fed in, in their thinking had changed from what they were saying not just uh, not that long ago. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think actually to uh, your point, Samuel, I think that um, that uh, Chairman Powell yesterday said that they were, uh, I guess, uh, talking about talking about retiring the phrase talking about talking about. So perhaps that's something that may be going away uh, in the future. But, you know, I would probably say this to Gabriel, which is that, you know, the way that finance and economics generally work is that things happen on the margin. So what we have right now is this uh, very dovish, very accommodative uh, policy that's been in place uh, basically uh, with a small blip of reversal since the global financial crisis, uh, since 2008-2009 vintage. Uh, what makes this a hawkish statement uh, is that it's talking about withdrawing some of the extraordinary accommodation that's been uh, in place for some time. So at the margin, definitely something that's moving in the direction of tightening. Markets reacted to it precisely uh, as though that were the case uh, when we saw rates rise, treasury prices fall, break-evens change, all of these things about telegraphing the signal. Uh, the Fed is a dominant actor in the bond market. They have the ability to move rates uh, pretty dramatically. And so that this is part and parcel of this normalization process. So seen as hawkish because we're withdrawing the dovishness, I suppose, if that's fair to say. And don't you think this was exactly the reaction that they wanted, that they're wiping their brows saying, okay, there wasn't a huge, there were 
there was reaction, but it wasn't anything breathtaking at the end of the day. So don't you think they're walking away saying we did exactly what we wanted to do? I have little doubt because I think they're incredibly satisfied with that uh, U.S. 30-year long bond um, where it is, uh, somewhere like 2.1. Uh, that is a sign of faith in the Federal Reserve, faith in its ability to control inflation, that the people who want to lend the U.S. government money for 30 years, uh, they, they want to do it, and that that rate is going down. That is faith in the Fed, and it's faith in its ability to fight inflation. Yeah, and I also think I would add to that there is, there is the additional benefit of uh, being able to do this in an incremental fashion to try and withdraw the extraordinarily accommodative policy uh, in a way that was stepwise and incremental. They've been very careful about this signaling, the forward guidance. So I think that the fact that they were able to signal uh, a withdrawal of some of the accommodative policies without absolute chaos reigning uh, was definitely a benefit and definitely uh, an example, uh, at least I would think in their view, as you suggest, Samuel, uh, of the fact that policy is working as they'd intended. Yeah, the dollar, I think, is the big winner as I'm watching the pound go down from about $1.42 to $1.40. Everyone say, what's happening with the pound? Nothing's happening with the pound. Everything's happening with the dollar. So I think the dollar is the big, the big winner in this, depending on if a strong dollar is good for you or not. Yeah, and this is to the point of dollar strengthening uh, around rates rising and the perception that there's going to be greater yield uh, potentially in the U.S. as we go forward. You know, to exactly that point. Uh, a question to you, Samuel, uh, from Jeff Defoe. I have a question that might be nice for the UK guy. To what extent does ECB discussion around tapering their QE-ish programs and rates impact U.S. markets? Well, it, they're well, it's funny because I've been thinking about it the other way. What, what's happening in the U.S.? How is it affecting Europe? And I don't think so much. I don't think that I think that we're in two very different situations right now. And I don't think that they are looking at each other uh, for guidance at, at this point. And so I, I, I think right now the markets aren't really moving nearly as in sync as, as they have uh, in other parts of the pandemic, to tell you the truth. Right. In fact, as, as they have uh, since the uh, sort of coordinated global policy action from 2008. It's a very good point. Yeah, and it, it, the other interesting point that I saw on this side of the pond today was uh, some of the, you heard the central bankers say, well, we can't do what the United States can do. You know, the United States can really affect things in the short term. Here in Europe, they really don't have that ability. They can only look to the medium term. And people are, forget that we are still under lockdown in many places, including the UK, even though we have higher vaccination rates, significantly higher vaccination rates. Uh, in this country, as opposed to the United States, that these lockdowns are still there, which means that this value is still being unlocked in the markets. People still see a lot of growth to be had here. And that's why you see European markets performing so well compared to, to U.S. markets. All of a sudden, the attention is shift here because there is a lot of pent up demand. And of course, I'm one of those people hoping to get to Spain, hoping to get to Portugal away from uh, cloudy, rainy Britain and spend my money over there. That's just not happening right now. There's still so much testing that has to go on and still yeah. so many lockdowns. Yeah, it's also interesting to think about the, the, the uh, European project, uh, the Schengen area, how we saw uh, those hard borders suddenly materialize again uh, with the lockdown with countries restricting uh, access uh, and changing their basically open border policies. Absolutely. But it makes you think once those borders are opening back up, which we're having all types of signs will be very soon, Interestingly, if you're an American and you want to come to the EU right now, you'll have an easier time than a Brit trying to go to 
the EU now that we're no longer a part of the EU. So I think it makes right. a lot of sense to look at some of those stocks. I mean, if you made a lot of money in Delta, maybe you want to start looking at some of these uh, EU airlines, some of these UK airlines. Certainly, they've seen huge increases since the, the bottom in the pandemic. But there's a lot of value that's still locked up in the lockdown waiting to be unlocked. Yeah. Gentlemen, anything we've missed? I've got one final story that I wanted to throw out. Yeah, well, um, I uh, think if I could go back to Samuel's point on the dollar, um, the, do the Federal Reserve's meeting and the announcement that it plans on planning on raising rates and the accompanying market action has really breathed new life into the dollar. If you look yeah. at the U.S. dollar index, we're now at 91. Um, and you don't really see that one from 90 to 91. You don't really see those big moves in currencies. Um, right. You know, the a 0.7 rise in the DXY is, is very big Huge. for currencies. And you know, what are the components of the U.S. dollar index? It's mainly the euro and then the Japanese yen. And let's look at how those interest rate differentials and rising rates really affected that. Um, if you look at this part of the 10-year, you'll see that the uh, U.S. dollar rallied against the Japanese yen in lockstep, pretty much, with the U.S. 10-year. And the reason is that when rates are high in the U.S., relative to Germany, relative to uh, Japan, that attracts capital abroad to go into um, the U.S. market to earn yield. It's just money looking for a home, just like just like us. And then yeah. uh, let's look at the. It's, the one of, it's actually one of my favorite stories because it's so easy to understand. Who wouldn't want to put money in a U.S. bank and get these interest rates if they're heading one direction? It's one of the few times you can say that's easy to explain. Exactly. And then the euro, likewise. Um, if you, I, I made this chart of the two-year differential between the U.S. two-year yield and the German two-year Bund yield. And you can see that as uh, you know, German yields held flat and two years absolutely exploded yesterday, um, that was a big catalyst. Um, so yeah, we, we can put that chart down. And Samuel, I know you were talking earlier about the impacts of a rising dollar or a weaker dollar on uh, the ability of countries and, and, um, to import and export and how that impacts competitiveness. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, well, it's something that we, I mean, suffered greatly here in the UK with Brexit. It really brought the pound down and terrible for, for importers, great for, for exporters. A weak currency will, will make it all that much easier for you to export your product if it's much cheaper abroad. You know, it comes down along the same lines in the US. If you're an exporter, great. If you're an importer, it's, you know, it's not going to be, not going to make it as easy. And, and what I was intrigued to see is, I don't know that you saw huge effects, knock-on effects on that in the market, but uh, it, it, you did see, except for something like gold, you know, gold is, I think you mentioned earlier, of course, it's going to make sense. People are going to want to move from gold to the dollar than if you're getting a better interest rate. Yeah. Uh, and obviously, this is also something that has an impact on U.S. manufacturers. Uh, we should also point out to Jack's point about the magnitude of the of the change, I believe the average move in dollar price is three tenths of one percent on a daily basis. So when you see these moves, uh, they are pretty dramatic and they are pretty amplified uh, relative. If people are, for example, equity market investors, you know, you see the S and P is up one or two percent on the day. It's not generally a big deal in currencies. It's a very big deal. I thought that I thought I saw the decimal point in the wrong place. I figured it was a mistake when I first saw it. You just do not see that that often. Yeah. So I was saying a little bit earlier, one final story, words that I never thought I would say on the Real Division Daily Briefing, uh, OnlyFans. Tell us a little bit about what is happening in OnlyFans, Samuel. 
Well, OnlyFans isn't just for adult entertainers. Of course, it skyrocketed during the pandemic because a lot of people were at home wanting to watch more or having the time to watch more pornographic content. One thing that's always stood out to me is a sex worker who I interviewed who talked about this being a complete sea change for her because she had uh, been working in prostitution and now she was able to do this, uh, in doing live webcam shows via only, uh, OnlyFans. And it had proved not only her economic security greatly, I mean, she's making thousands and thousands of dollars, I think actually tens of thousands of dollars a month and not having to sell her body physically anymore. But the real headline is here that they're looking uh, to sell more shares, privately owned family company, as Jack pointed out here in the UK. But I mean, this is a company that saw their users skyrocket to 120 million users now. I mean, almost all of the growth happened just in the pandemic. You see people who are not just in pornography using this. You've seen Cardi B, for example, wanting to connect with her fans this way. So big names outside of adult entertainment wanting to use this platform. And to me, it gets to the whole reason why I'm here. I spent about a decade at CNN reporting for CNN International. I wasn't you know, part of the uh, political part of CNN as it's become much more politicized in, in the Trump and post-Trump world. I was reporting for CNN overseas. And people in our industry know which way things are going. And people in mainstream media know which way things are going. And it is to platforms like Real Vision. And in some ways, although we have very different content than a company like OnlyFans, this is about huge shifts in the market and people being willing, people being able and willing to pay for content that they know yeah. is going to be quality. So much in the way that people might have their favorite adult star or their favorite anchor on Real Vision and someone that they know that they're going to get great value from watching this product, they're yeah. willing to pay money for it. And so this is really the success of streaming platforms outside of the Netflix and the, and the more obvious ones. I wish it were a publicly traded company already. We know that some uh, SPACs have tried to get their hands on it so that right. they could do it. Would love to invest in it. Unfortunately, we don't have that opportunity with this particular company. Yeah. Jack, any thoughts? I, I think if it did SPAC, it could have been an eight-bagger. You know, all SPAC starts yeah. at 10. I think it, it really has the zest because, number one, I don't think it's going away. I think it has empowered people in the adult entertainment industry to uh, monetize their brand in a way that hasn't been, you know, I mean, if you're a prostitute, like that person you were interesting, uh, uh, Sam, Samuel, then, you know, I mean, you're very bad labor conditions, very exploitative. Likewise, pornography, not a brand you associate with, uh, you know, not, a, 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 you know, being able to uh, earn, uh, you know, keep what you earn and, and the like. So I think that this has been uh, very powerful. So I think, um, you know, it, it has a lot of promise as a future business prospects. I also think as a SPAC, it would just explode because, you know, everyone knows OnlyFans and the, the GameStop AMC crowd, uh, I, they, I bet they'd probably take a swipe at that. Although it's interesting because somewhere like Netflix, you know what they can do with all that capital. They can invest in content, but this is a completely different business model where people are creating their own content. And so even if you gave OnlyFans tons of money, the obvious place would not be to invest in content. So similar right. platform, very different business model. So I keep on thinking to myself, what will they do next? Much in the way that Netflix and places like Real Vision that are so on the cusp are thinking, okay, what's our next move? I'm curious to know where those other places can go, but maybe it is celebrities figuring out how to monetize the millions of followers that they have on social right. media. Maybe they can make some big plays for some more mainstream content. Not that pornography is not mainstream, as you can tell from OnlyFans. Well, very well said, Samuel. You know, I think that there is always this sort of instinctive desire to, or 
sort of urge to chuckle a little bit when we talk about pornography. But the reality here is this ties into some of the broader themes that you mentioned earlier uh, that are so important and I think uh, are really happening and disrupting the global economy. Things like empowerment of content creators, uh, the desire and demand uh, to spend money consuming content online. Uh, it truly is a brave new world. And we've focused so, so often, I saw this a lot in reporting on tech at CNN, that you're focusing on all the negatives that can ha happen for the, the labor market, obviously jobs being automated, et cetera. And that's, that's real, those have effects. But I don't think enough attention has been paid to these people who are shifting careers and making huge amounts of money. And where before, lots well-documented pornography stars talking about being exploited, a lot of women being exploited, by the big porn studios now having all of the power, no middleman for lack of a better better term in this world. And so this is a place where, as you say, content creation, it's really disrupting and putting power and monetary power in the hands of the creator in ways that we've never seen before in the history of media. Yeah, speaking of empowering content creators, Jack, final thoughts. I'm just thinking of OnlyFans as a business. Let's see, it went from 20 million users before COVID to now 120 million. Uh, you're absolutely right, Samuel, that, that it doesn't, you don't have to spend a lot of content because people, it's generated by users. I, I think that as a business person, that's good. You want that. Like The fact that Netflix has to spend all this money on content is one of the reasons that it almost never has a profitable quarter. Um, and, and then let's see. Uh, oh, it takes 20%. It takes a cut. Um, you know, There's no middleman, but it still is a middleman. It gets a little, little 20%. Um, it has a lot of future possibilities of, of content creators who are you know, not in the adult entertainment industry of monetizing. So tons of uh, a big, a big TAM, uh, total addressable market. So I'm just thinking, hey, uh, maybe, maybe uh, it's time to invest in OnlyFans. <laughs> well, it makes me want to look around and see what other, I mean, I spend a lot of today looking around saying, where can I get my hands on a company like this? How can I? And it's really not accessible much to the, to the broader markets yet. And so... We're waiting for a SPAC to pick up one of those companies. Yeah. Samuel, we're thrilled to have you here. It's your first day. Final thoughts. You get the last word. Well, I think it is all about platforms like OnlyFans, like Real Vision. I think that these are huge shifts in what's happening with content. And I think too often we just think about Netflix and their competitors. For someone like me, it's a really incredible day when you can connect with the audience the way Real Vision does and that you can find new ways to communicate messages. So much about financial news has turned into entertainment and really been so broad. And a channel like Real Vision can really uh, focus, can really uh, nail down certain topics that are really motivating the audience. And so I think at the end of the day, this is why people get into journalism, so that you can connect with an audience, so that you can give the audience what they desire. Instead of having to go broad, you can just pass the ball right to them. And so I'm really excited to join you, Ash, to join you, Jack. And I think it's an incredible opportunity. And it's exciting to see a lot of the headlines that have been generated about Real Vision in the past 24 hours. Well said and well summarized. Thank you again for joining us. And thanks for watching, everyone. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. 
Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.